Glory to God. In Luganda, we would say, Echitiwa Chayesu, glory to Jesus. What a great song to launch us into, really what we've come to for this glorious Sunday, walking through the, the solas, coming to the third, and really what many would argue, myself included, is the high point of the solas. You know, last week, Peter took our eyes from gazing at the reality of our own depravity, our total and complete sinfulness and corruption of heart and mind, to bask in the truth of sovereign grace, lavished grace, Ephesians 1, undeserved and anti-deserved grace. And he drew us into grace alone, a theme fit for worship, as Peter phrased it. And so today we get to take the theme fit for worship and gaze upon the object of that theme, the object of our worship, Christ alone. Jesus as the true object and high point of our worship and of our lives. As Steve Wellam, who has taught over at Randolph Street, has said, Christ alone is not a slogan. It is the center of the solas by which the reformers recovered the grace of God and declared the glory of God. Because scripture alone leads to grace alone, to the place of beholding Christ alone, that we can respond through faith alone for the glory of God alone, which incredibly also climaxes in and through Jesus and through his work among us and in this world. And so Solus Christus was the crucial pillar. This is new for me. It was the crucial pillar on which the Reformation churches stood because the reformers were facing a culture that had syncretized the gospel or they had taken the gospel and, and wed it together with aspects of culture and really the desire of the human heart to work, to earn, to have what we cling to in ourselves to attain something before God. Last week, Peter drew that out as he looked at the equation that they had taken really the, the central equation of our sinfulness plus God's grace alone equals our salvation. They had made it our sinfulness plus God's grace and something in ourselves, something in me equals our salvation. And the reformers were proclaiming this truth. It is our sinfulness plus God's grace through Christ and his righteousness which equals our salvation. Christ's work is sufficient. It is enough. Echitiwa chayesu. Glory to Christ. So what does this mean for us? Is it just as necessary for us as Christians today to boldly proclaim solus Christus, Christ alone, and I hope the answer is a resounding yes. It's my prayer that this morning, as we walk out of here together, 
that we will have a renewed grounding in the powerful and transformational truth of Christ alone for our hearts, our minds, our marriages, our families, our lives. Because our culture this day desperately needs us to be able to proclaim Christ alone. So let's pause and and just pray together as we come into God's word. So Father, in Jesus' name, for the glory of that awesome name, we are here, gathered around you together through your spirit, your church, your body. Lord, would you wash your bride in the beautiful truths of your word this day? Would you open up our eyes to behold Christ? Would you show us Christ? Because you are the one that we desperately long for and need. And you have given yourself for your people. We want to bask in that. Would you build us up this day? For the glory of your name, amen. In Christ alone, One of my favorite early church stories highlights what it means to live in Christ alone. And somehow I I think Peter mentioned this story some weeks back. I I can't remember for sure. My mind comes back to it over and over because when I think of coming to the end of days, especially as we look at culture and life around the world and here in the U.S., very well could be many of our endings. A man named Polycarp, who was the bishop of Smyrna, He was a disciple of the Apostle John, a pillar in the church. And as the persecution was increasing in those days, they came for Polycarp, an old man, uh, far into his 80s, maybe 90s, uh, maybe hundreds, I don't know. And they took him away. And the governor faced Polycarp and said to him, if you will swear and reproach Christ, I will set you free. And this response, wow. Polycarp says, 86 years have I served him. And he has never done me wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? I won't tell you the end of the story. You can Google Polycarp's end and you can read about it. It's fascinating. Yeah, let me just say it that way, it's fascinating. But those words that even in the moment of being delivered to what is sure to be a painful death, my Savior has done me no wrong. How could I blaspheme my King? He understood it's Christ. And when you have tasted Christ alone and you've walked through the ups and the downs and the challenges of life in Christ alone and you have clung to Christ alone, And on that day, like Peter, where else am I gonna go? Where else do we go, Lord? You have the words of eternal life. And as we begin to think about Christ alone today, as we turn our hearts to God's word together, just wanna ask that question, is Christ alone your banner? You could ask it this way, is Christ enough? Is Christ enough? We're going to ask it in three questions. Is Christ enough? Is he enough 
for my salvation? Is he enough for my life here and now? And is he enough for the fullness of my devotion to him? Is he enough? We're going to do a lot of turning in pages. I don't have the scriptures up for you to look at. So you can flip quickly in your Bibles. You can hear that beautiful sound. Or you can sit and listen to God's word as I read many, many passages. But I want to start with Ephesians 2. We've read it, I think, every week in the solas. And I want to do it again because it really does capture so much of of what we're seeing built through this series. And so let's read from Ephesians 2 together, starting in verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom... We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. He raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God not a result of work so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So we ask the first question, is Jesus enough for my salvation? That really is the center of what the reformers were getting at. Because the misunderstanding of the gospel, of how is someone made right before God, is what the churches were bound into. The reformers wanted to see you and me, the church of their day, set free from a false understanding of the gospel. How was someone truly saved? There's two great problems that face us as we come into this, amongst others, but two big ones. The first is that Problem one, say, we are dead in sin. Problem two, we're under the wrath of God. Last week, we, or two weeks ago, we looked at that as we then basked in this amazing sovereign grace together. But how does the gospel answer those questions specifically? How do you take someone who is dead in sin and under the wrath of God and make them alive and blessed or righteous. We could ask, how do you go from God against you to God for you? 
Because as we see in Ephesians 2, that is the great problem. You were dead. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. All of us following the course of this world. It's like a giant river that is flowing and we by nature flow in it. Following the prince of the power of the air. We often don't think of ourselves as following Satan, but that is our nature. It is our, he is not our natural father, but he is the father of our flesh. He is the one we by nature follow. The spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience. We lived there, the passions of our flesh. Carrying out by nature the desires of the body and the mind, we were by nature children of wrath. And so there are those two problems, dead in sin, by nature under God's wrath. What do we do? How do we face this? You imagine preaching the gospel to one who has died. Imagine bringing a coffin up and just proclaiming the gospel. Would any of you expect any response at all. We wouldn't. Because the dead don't hear. The dead don't respond. The dead are dead. And that death goes all the way back to Genesis 3. When sin came into the world, death came. Spiritual death, immediate. Physical death, to follow. And those go together. And as Paul writes to the Ephesians, he's letting them know you were dead. He's reminding them that was your state. And he chooses that strong word for an intentional reason because it captures the spiritual state of our hearts apart from Christ. And when we're dead and under wrath because judgment is real, what can we do for ourselves? What can a dead man do? Answer, stink. That's it. And that was me. That was you. Apart from Christ, there's a reality. And in that reality, there's something about simply saying to yourself, apart from Christ, in my sin, I deserve the wrath of God. There's something about making it personal just remembering, I deserve it. In fact, Colossians 3 says simply in verse five and six, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you? Put it to death. Sexual morality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. It's real. I deserve it in my sin apart from Christ. But then Ephesians 3 verse 4 gives us this incredible but. Because though we were dead in sin and though we were by nature children of wrath, deserving wrath, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, in our sin, in our trespasses, God made us alive. 
God made us alive. It's astounding. It takes me back to John 3 and Nicodemus and Jesus saying, you know, unless you're born again, you will not see the kingdom of God. Later, you will not enter the kingdom of God. You won't enter it. You can't even see it. How can a man be born again? Well, the spirit blows like the wind wherever he wants. That's how it is with those who are born of the spirit. There's just something amazing because one moment you're dead. And I think if you're in Christ, you can remember back to when the gospel was not exciting to your ears. When the glory of Jesus was something that the guy talked about up here or someone said to you, but it wasn't something that resonated in your soul. And then one day something changed. Conviction of sin comes on the heart. The beauty of Christ before your eyes. The truth of the gospel, can it be? The reality of your need revealed and a desire for what you didn't desire. Something brought life into a dead heart. And suddenly the gospel shined like light. I love how 2 Corinthians 4 brings it in verse 6. Paul says this to the Corinthians, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Paul's taking them all the way back to Genesis. When God spoke, there is darkness. Let there be light. And the light just bursts forth. Where it wasn't, it was. And the universe would never be the same because light has now taken over, shined through the darkness. And the God who spoke, let light shine out of the darkness, that God has shown in our hearts, we who were dead in sin and under the wrath of God. He has spoken in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And suddenly our eyes are opened. Live, live. He speaks light and we see Christ. And so he takes the dead man and he makes him alive. But then, how does he deal with the issue of sin that brings wrath? We'll go on in 2 Corinthians, in chapter 5, in verse 21. He states very clearly, For our sake, he, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin. So that in him, Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. Is that crazy? For our sake, Jesus takes our sin and we receive 
his righteousness. What an exchange. That our sin is counted as Christ's sin, he who knew no sin. And his righteousness is counted as ours, we who had no righteousness. How does this happen? I think Hebrews chapter 9 takes us there. It says in verse 12, Jesus entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the sprinkling of defiled persons with the blood of goats and bulls, with the ashes of a heifer, sanctifies for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, how much will he purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And so Jesus, in the moment of his death, something magnificent occurred as he sheds his blood, as he offers himself, as he becomes, takes our sin he offers himself without blemish to sanctify and to purify we who were defiled with sin. What an exchange. Romans 3 says that he does this. Let me just read it for you. Many of us know these verses, but let them just be fresh. As we think about Christ alone, he writes, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. And this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time. And get this, so that he might be two things that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So how can God righteously take a sinner under wrath, dead, and bring him over to have life and be given righteousness when he deserves none of that? And God is both just and justifier because justly Christ put himself forward to be the wrath bearer of our sin, our propitiation, to take the wrath of God on himself that we might receive his righteousness, that he would be just and justifier both at the cross for those who have faith in Jesus. If you're seated here, that is good news. If you haven't tasted the grace of God and the forgiveness of Christ, that is great, great news. Unbelievable, unfathomable, unimaginable. And yet it's for you and it's for me.
John Piper said it this way, Christ alone, his blood and righteousness and resurrection life is the only basis on which God's justice is satisfied. And he becomes 100% for us in Christ forever. Moving from God being against you to God being for you is a life-changing reality. Because if you're in Afghanistan and you are fleeing, new in your faith, and yet knowing what is before you in persecution and death, it surely will not feel like God is for me. And yet he's for you. And he is enough. He is enough for our salvation. He is enough for our lives. He is more than enough. That, that, that reality, God, are you really for me? And I think as we go from this, this, this amazing truth of Christ's redemption, there, there's a word that captures it because we are justified in Christ. We who were declared guilty are declared not guilty as Jesus was declared guilty on our behalf. We are justified in Christ. We stand before God free, but he doesn't leave us there. And that's enough. But it doesn't stop there. He goes one step farther. In Christ alone, and because of Christ alone, Romans 8 says very clearly in verse 6, 15, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit. We are children of God and of children heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. And there's too much there to unpack now. But to be heirs with Christ, it's in Christ alone and in Christ and with Christ. Because when we are declared forgiven, when we are justified, God sends his spirit and he takes us who were enemies by nature following Satan and he adopts us into his family. And what a glorious gift because there he gives us his spirit by whom we cry, you see it? Do you hear it? Abba, Father. Abba, Father. And that isn't just random terms. The Abba, Father. You hear Jesus, the intimate Son of God with the Father in the garden, facing his coming death for our sin, to bear the wrath of God for sinners and the weight of that reality and all that he was in anguish, he cries out in the most intimate word that language offered him, Abba, Father, 
It's not about the word. It's about the intimacy of the relationship. And Jesus is the intimate one with the Father. And as he expresses it and as he cries it out, for us who are in Christ, the Spirit in us cries out, Abba, Father. You could say, Daddy, Father. You could say, Father. Whatever it is that captures the reality of the intimacy we have been invited into in God. Because the Spirit in us is crying it out. And then Galatians 4 actually says that we cry out by the Spirit, Abba, Father. And it's both of these together. I remember when our Ugandan daughter, really as God was bringing her into our family and into our hearts, we had been with her when her mother had died of AIDS. Um, her father really hadn't been a part of her life. She was in a very, very difficult situation, so New Hope was caring for her. And then she got news that her father had died. And that brought out so much pain within her. I remember sitting with her and just going over the truths of the gospel with her. But when it came to the fatherhood of God, in Christ alone who brings us to the Father. Oh, that one. Isn't God distant like my earthly father? Doesn't God not have time with, for me like my earthly father? I remember sitting with her and just speaking the truths of the gospel over her. God is the perfect father. God has adopted you into his family. He has set his love on you. He has given you the gift to call him Tata in Luganda. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. He is for you. He has carried you through every day of your life. Even when you have been at your lowest, he has held you. Even when you haven't known it, he is the father your heart has longed for. You could just see the tears start coming, just speaking, just speaking. And as we prayed together, wow, it was like something just lifted. And not only did God knit her heart to himself as father, but he knit her heart to me as father. It wasn't long after that she began to call me Papa. Because God loves to reveal his, earth, his heavenly fatherhood through earthly fatherhood. And it is a gift. Christ alone leads us to the Father alone. It's only in Christ that we come to the Father. And so we go from being enemies under wrath to being friends under grace who become sons and daughters to the Father. And so when I hear any definition of solus Christus, I always want to see it lead me to the sonship and daughterhood that is ours. And one definition says this of solus Christus. It says it means that Jesus Christ is our only hope. We have salvation in him only. We add nothing to his work. His work is perfect to save to the uttermost everyone who believes in him. This perfection is imputed to God's children, granting justification and righteousness, and I would add on, an adoption and family. Because that is the beauty of Christ alone.
by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Is Jesus enough for our salvation? Yes, more than. And we've only scratched the surface because it is more than even these things. And so that leads us really second, is Jesus enough for my life? Is he enough for me now, right here, right now? It's an incredible truth that Jesus brings us to the Father. Sometimes it can seem though, in the way we talk about the gospel, that it's for getting to heaven. But as we've said, it's so much more than that. Christ alone is for right here in the battles, in the broken places, in the struggles, in the hardships. Because of Christ alone, we are never alone. We have a father who cares. We have brothers and sisters. But we also have Jesus as our big brother, as Hebrews chapter one or chapter two calls him our brother. He's our king and he is our brother. And, and as Jesus died and rose again, conquering sin and death and Satan, and as he sits at the right hand of God, as he brings us to the Father, Jesus functions in a very important role. And in Christ alone, we must be grounded in this if we are going to proclaim, yes, Jesus is enough for my salvation and for my life now. So what two things? There, there, there are two words that are really trying to get to the heart of the same thing. And the first we find in 1 John chapter two. Listen to verses one and two. My little children, I like the family language. I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Right? I mean, you were dead in sin. You've been made alive. I, I'm writing so that you won't sin. But if anyone does sin, okay, that's today, Christian. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. You hear that? Just as Jesus bore our sin, he took our punishment, but as he conquered death, as he rose gloriously, as he ascended to the right hand, he no longer is held by sin. He paid the price, he took the wrath, and now he is alive in full righteousness. And John calls him Jesus Christ, the righteous. And because of Christ, at the right hand of the Father, we have an advocate. That's the first. Is Jesus enough for my life? Yes. I don't have it there. He's our advocate. So what's an advocate? It's a person who pleads another's cause. It's one who stands for another and represents them and to support, in support of something or someone. You speak in another's behalf. And as we still battle the reality of sin, we have an advocate before the Father who pleads for us. I wonder if, you've pictured Jesus pleading for you as an advocate on your behalf? It's a second term. He is also our high priest. And a high priest is one who stands to represent a person or a people before, before God, ultimately. 
And Hebrews 2 is going to use language very similar to John. He, do, he doesn't use the word advocate, though. Listen to Hebrews 2, verse 14 and following. I'm going to skip through a little bit. but So that he, Jesus, might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And so there's that same, he's our propitiation. He takes the wrath of God in our place. And in that, he still stands before God as one interceding for us, before God. He is a merciful and faithful high priest because he himself suffered when tempted. He is more than able to help us when we are tempted. When we are alone, we are not alone. Hebrews 7 actually says it this way, that though the former priests were many in number, they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but Jesus holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Isn't that awesome? Jesus is living to make intercession for us. I won't read it, but in Romans 8, Paul also adds on the truth that it is the Spirit of God even when we don't know what to pray, the Spirit intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. He who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So Jesus is interceding and the Spirit is interceding. Do you think Jesus is enough for our lives right here and right now? You think for whatever you're facing, whatever it is that you're going through, whatever struggle, whatever challenge, there is one who is an advocate for you and who is interceding for you. And there is something beautiful about entering into prayer with this greater reality. Again, it is a life-changing, transforming reality. And so that as I go to pray for my brother and my sister, I'm praying in awareness that Jesus as the high priest, as the advocate, is already interceding for that person. I recognize that the Spirit of God already knows exactly what to pray according to the will of God for that person. And so as I pray, oh God, for my son Isaiah or for Noah or Malachi, oh God, I want to enter into your prayers on their behalf because you know what they need. You know what so-and-so needs better than me. I ask for this, but I ask in confidence because you are at work and because you will be glorified. And so we, we pray with a confidence into the lives of others. And even as we engage one another, we engage one another in this greater reality. Have you ever been with someone who is suffering and you just haven't known what to say? I mean, have you ever been in your own suffering and you haven't known what to say? <laughs> These truths are grounding truths. I remember praying for my sister for many years, really before she, she 
knew Christ. She was going through some very cha uh, deep challenges and a very abusive relationship, and she was just suffering. I'd been praying for her for months. I remember going and being with her in the midst of her tears. I didn't know what to say. I knew that she needed Jesus. <sighs> what do I say? And then I just simply said, sis, can I, can I just pray for you? And these truths were ringing in my heart. And I remember just praying, oh God, I don't know what my sister's feeling right now. I know she's hurting. I wish I knew. I hurt with her. But Jesus, you know how she feels. You yourself have suffered in every way. And you have overcome. You alone know what she's going through. And you alone can meet her right now in her need. And so Jesus, would you walk with her? Would you carry her through her suffering? I don't remember all that I said, but as I just said amen, I remember her just in tears, and there was something in that moment through the Spirit of God, maybe light shined into darkness in that moment because something changed, and she began to pursue God and to know Christ, and that began a, a beautiful journey of her changing uh, for the glory of God, um, and as a beautiful, redeemed woman, one of my best friends. Um, Jesus is advocate. He's high priest. And we engage others in that reality. We're leading them to the one who truly has the power to change. So is Jesus enough for my life right now? I hope the answer is yes. He's more than enough. So is Jesus enough for my full devotion. See, enough for my whole heart. Many of us are happy to think about the truth of being justified in Christ, and we're also even happy to know that we have a high priest, an advocate who stands before God on our behalf. We're happy for these truths, but there's a great danger. Because the great danger is that we would then think that because now God is for me, he who was against me, that somehow I am the center of the universe. Now, we wouldn't say it that way, but it's God is for me. It's all about me. I've often joked that I want to buy a t-shirt that says it's all about me because that's my default. I'm default to think that it's all about me. And then we do that with Jesus. Jesus rotates around me. Surely he's our high priest, right? And, and everything around me. And, and that is a lie. We have to come against that and say, no, I am not the center of the universe. I'm not the center of the world. I'm not the center of anything. And so if we ask, is Jesus enough for my full devotion? What we're really asking is, is Christ alone the center of your life? That's really what we're asking. It's Christ alone, not Keith alone, not yourself alone. And so the gospel comes and it confronts us and it rips us out of ourselves as the center because it's not about us. And we're gonna bask in that reality when we come into the fifth sola, sola gloria, for the glory of God alone. But right here, right now, I want us to be confronted with the truth that Christ alone 
draws us to the center of the universe because it's Jesus alone is why the world was created and it's why we exist. You know, our world struggles with Jesus. Who is Jesus? What Jesus are we talking about? Even as we say Christ alone, what Christ? You could say, well, the Christ who died for you. Well, okay. There's a lot of different Jesuses that people are preaching about that died for us. Jesus, our advocate and high priest, yeah, but what Jesus are we talking about? And if we're gonna really say Christ alone, then we need to spend the next five hours here. We're gonna start in Genesis and we're gonna walk through who is the Jesus that's Christ alone. We, we're not. If we were in Uganda, we'd think about it. But this story walks us through a reality that from creation through the fall and through all of history, people and events and everyone who has existed and all of the stars and all of the planets and all of them are rotating around one great reality and that is Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. We see that in scripture like we read a few weeks back from Hebrews 1, he, Jesus, who created the world is the radiance of the glory of God. He's the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. Acts 17 says, in him, in Christ, we live and move and have our being. The truth is, Galatians 4.4, one of my favorite verses, says, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. And I love it because it tells me all of time was moving and orchestrating to, that full, to the full point of the birth of Christ. Christ coming to live, to die, to rise, to ascend, and he will come again and he will judge. We are a part of something much greater than ourselves. We stand before the one who has conquered death, who has tamed nature, who when he walked on this earth, cast out demons, overcame temptation, loved his father and people, gave his life, yielded it up, defeated sin, death and Satan and reigns with all power in heaven and on earth. And this gospel is going into the nations. The starting point isn't asking, is Jesus' sacrifice the only way? The starting point, and by the way, that's a yes. But the starting point is actually asking, who is Jesus according to the entirety of Scripture? Because this Jesus demands our lives. But he promises so much more in return. It's what we were made for, to know him, to make him known. When Laura Beth and I were moving to Uganda, we would hear language of, of, you know, when were you called to missions? When were you called? And I think the picture many of us would have would be seated in a, a service like this and a sermon on missions. And is anyone here willing to go? And do you feel called? And, and then I, I think I'm called. And, and some of us might have actually experienced that. And that's amazing. Um, Lord Beth and I never experienced that. God, in both of us, birthed in us a love for the nations through simply being confronted with the truth of the gospel and the Jesus of the universe for the nations. 
And as we came and centered in that reality, is Jesus enough for my full devotion? Like, yes, where else would I go? All of me. Lord, why do I exist? What, is, what are you doing in this world? He began to captivate us with a vision for the nations that he died to redeem. We began to say, well, Lord, would you, would you send us? As he stirred that, we've always said from the beginning, we'll serve God wherever he sends us, wherever. And of course, it's always beautiful when the local body comes alongside and says, we see that calling and we affirm it. That's powerful to be sent out in that reality. Are you submitting to the Jesus by whom and for whom all things exist? Are you being held captive by, by your vision of Jesus instead of submitting to the real Jesus? Each of us are going to be confronted at one time or another with the Jesus that we want or expect and the Jesus that is. The Jesus that speaks life. The Jesus that will judge. The Jesus that alone is the purpose for which we live. And we have to choose, will we submit to that Jesus? Or are we gonna live in our me-centered expectations and experience? Happy to have little Jesus, and to hear truths of our salvation, and even truths of Jesus as high priest. And yet, Solus Christus should shake us and say, it's Christ alone. Live for what is greater than yourself. Here in the hills and the hollers of West Virginia, I can easily find myself being wooed softly to sleep, ready to believe the lie that says it's my happiness, it's my comfort that matters, my security, that's most important. People in Afghanistan, that's terrible. We'll pray for them. I'm glad that's not me. I need to be snapped back into reality for these hills and hollers and tribes and nations because there's something bigger and there's a greater hope, Christ alone. There's a way to pray, Christ alone. There's a way to live for Christ alone. I like to contrast Polycarp really with another biblical figure who I really do resonate with, and that's John the Baptist. You think about John proclaiming you're the one. This never gets old. You can hear Peter tell the story, hear others tell the story, because I see myself there. I can see John being arrested and put in prison unexpected. He's expecting Jesus. You know, part of the, the messianic promise was that, yes, he will, he will open the eyes of the blind and the poor will have the, the good news proclaimed, but the prisoners will be set free. And you can just see John like, hey, I'm in prison. Am I going to be set free? You know, it, the, somehow Jesus didn't meet up to his expectations. John, who knew, and he sends the disciples to ask, are you really the one? Somehow his view of Jesus was being confronted. And that's what happens in our suffering. And that's what happens when things don't work out according to how we think. And even the place I find myself in right now, God, what do you have for me, for my family? caught between Uganda and America and unable to see the way forward. 
Are you really enough? And Jesus is so, so gracious to John. You know, he goes out and he just starts doing stuff. And he tells the disciples, go tell John what you've seen. You know, the blind, they can see. The, the, the dead are raised. The poor have good news. And then Jesus simply says, blessed is the one who's not offended by me. All right. And I can just imagine John getting those words. Mm. <laughs> yeah, I have stumbled over the stumbling stone. But I want Jesus. And I'm willing to be crushed. I'm willing to die for Jesus because it's Christ alone that matters. He is our salvation. He is our priest and advocate. He is the fullness of our lives and devotion. He is enough. What is the center of your life? Do we really believe solus Christus? May we live in light of Jesus as the center. Let's pray. God, wow. Um, we've said so much, way too fast, too many glorious truths for a short time. Every heart here, Lord, is in a different place. And I'm thankful that your spirit knows the need of each one. You know those who need to hear those words. You are my beloved son and daughter, and I've adopted you, and you can call me father. You know those who need to hear that Christ's sacrifice was enough, and our works add nothing to pursue Christ alone, to trust Christ alone. You know those who are here just living in sin under your wrath. Would you shine your light into those hearts? to give them eyes to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus. You know, those of us who are just living with the world spinning around us, making ourselves the center, would you set us free that Christ would be our center, that we could be transformed in how we view the world and how we live and how we pray. And that, Lord, you would raise up this body to live and proclaim Christ alone. Thank you for the hope of the gospel. What good news you bring to our hearts and our lives. Thank you for your word, Lord. You are good. We praise you and you alone. Amen.